0: Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast.
1: Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends.
0: Welcome to episode three of Canine Hijinks. Today, we are learning about learning. We're going to take a look at how people learn, what effective practice looks like, and how understanding this can help you to learn more with your dogs.
1: Before we get started, Alyssa, what's something fun you did with your dogs over the last couple of weeks?
0: Well, I've been teaching my puppy, Alegria, how to bow, and I've also been teaching my rat terrier how to pickpocket. (laughs) How How about you, Whitney?
1: I haven't been doing a lot of training. We've been blessed with some really nice weather over the last few days, and because we were supposed to have this um, bad weather coming, I spent some time outside with my son. He helped me clear some blackberries so that we could have a path in the woods behind our house.
0: Ooh. Sprite
1: thinks it is super fun to run around in the woods, uh, but Fractal, my tough guy, he won't come in the woods. He just stands <laughs> at the like edge of the yard with his ball like, Mom. Come come, throw the ball for me. I don't want to go in there. It's pretty funny.
0: Oh, man. Dogs are silly. <laughs> so <laughs> today we're going to get a little bit nerdy. We are diving into Whitney's area of expertise and her day job. So Whitney, why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I work in adult education and my job is to develop training for in-home healthcare providers in Oregon. And since these are COVID times, this has been very specifically about developing online learning courses over the last year or so, Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to offer in-person courses again at some point. The field I work in is called learning and development or training and development, all variations of learning, training, and development. Uh, and I've been doing this work for about 10 years which uh, interestingly is about the same amount of time I've been doing agility that works out since most of what we're going to talk about today I actually learned while I was trying to figure out how to be a better dog trainer and agility handler and to be honest just a better human Mm -hmm. and it just happens to dovetail nicely with what I do in my day job and gives me kind of an additional perspective about how all of these principles can apply broadly so not just to dog training, but for really like all the different ways in which people learn and need to learn things.
0: Certainly. I Learning about dog training has helped fragility, and sometimes it applies to my day job too, but not quite as much as you, Whitney. But we wanted to hit on this topic early because when you're learning new things with your dog, it's not just the dog who is learning. It's actually more so the people who are learning. And to do so, we have to be good learners and good students.
1: Right. Future episodes will be much more dog-centric, but in the meantime, The first thing that I wanted to talk about today comes straight from my day job. So adult learning theory recognizes that adults learn differently than kids. Uh, there are a couple of main reasons for this. Adults already bring a lot of experience and understanding to the table. So we want others to recognize that experience and not treat us like we were born yesterday and have, you know, never heard of any of the concepts you're going to be presenting to us. We also really want learning that just gets right to the point. Like, why is this relevant? Why do I need to know it? And when am I going to use it? And this is something that we focus on a lot when it comes to on-the-job training. We'll also call this the whiff them or the what's in it for me that if you can't really help people understand that they'll really just um tune out on your training
0: for sure i have actually found that kids are often easier for me to teach agility to in large part because (laughs) they have fewer habits to break they're a lot more open to how to learn what to learn listening to what what i want them to do
1: Another thing about adults is that we don't like to be told what to do. And that's something kids are put in that frame a lot more often, right? That you just have to do as you're told. So it's a little bit easier for them. And recognizing this about yourself as an adult is something that's really important to think about as you embark on learning a new skill. We are putting ourselves back in a little bit more of a classic classroom setting when it, we embark on dog sports. So, generally speaking, we'll have minimal knowledge of the a new sport that we're starting and even a semi-minimal knowledge of dog training or maybe you think you know a lot and then you'll realize that you don't. So we're putting ourselves in a situation where we need to be really open and receptive to new information when our tendency is to weigh everything against our experience and look for a lot of shortcuts. So
0: I think what I hear you saying is we need to be good students, we the people who are learning this. <laughs> and since that's hard for us, I think it is easier for kids. Um, you know, they're still in school, they're learning all the time, where as adults, we're kind of supposed to be experts in everything. And what we really need to be is good students and open to the feedback we're getting from our instructors.
1: Yeah. Continuing then on the theme of how we learn, I think a good concept to discuss that applies more to this kind of learning than what we think of as traditional classroom learning, and that is the tell, show, do concept. When we are learning a new skill, only 10% of our learning comes from what other people tell us. So in corporate trainings, this is what we would refer to as a learning event like going to a class and seeing a presentation on a new topic and this is why corporate learning often fails to garner the results that companies want to see even if they invest a lot of money in these learning events is it's still only 10 percent of the learning you are not going to see behavior change or skill acquisition if that is the entirety of the learning opportunity so what are the other parts of it it is the show and do 20% 20% of the learning comes from when people show us how to do something, and then 70% of their learning comes from actually doing it ourselves, which is why there's always a lot of uncomfortable role play <laughs> in adult learning classes. Because if what we're learning about is communication, you have to actually do do it and at the very least you want to have an example of the instructor potentially demonstrating it's also why videos are a good form to learn cuz you start seeing it but it really the important 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 part is doing. You must actually do the skill yourself to learn it.
0: This makes me think about when you're learning to drive. You're not going to learn how to drive from watching videos or watching other people drive at some point. <laughs> right? Yeah, you have to get behind the wheel.
1: Yep, exactly. And I have picked up a COVID hobby I have been trying to learn guitar. And so no matter how many videos I watch of other people playing, I don't seem to get any better. Imagine that.
0: (laughs) Or in my case, for my day job, it's learning how to build a building. Seeing it is a lot different than doing it. And this applies so directly to learning sports and activities. When I teach classes, the students who do their homework in between classes excel and increase their skills far faster than those who don't. So if you're not practicing outside of class and doing it yourself, you're not really going to get any better from week to week.
1: Right. And there's there's just only so much time when you're in a class that's devoted to you getting the actual instruction and practicing the skill.
0: Well, and we could probably go on and on about how being in a classroom setting for an hour might be really hard for your dog also um, because (laughs) they have limits as to how much information they can take on at once as well. So uh, this moves us into our next topic. What if we are doing lots of doing, but we're not getting any better? What can we do about that?
1: First thing to recognize is that plateaus are very common during skill acquisition. This is important to remember. Don't be too hard on yourself. It's very, very common. Second, thanks to the research of Anders Ericsson. So he wrote the book Peak. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Such a
0: good book, by the way. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, but I love that book. It was one of my favorites that I've probably ever listened to on audio, audiobook.
1: So good. So it talks a lot about what forms of practice are most effective. And so in essence, the new saying goes, perfect practice makes perfect. What we're saying is not all practice is created equal. He uses the term naive practice, and I don't know why this is the example that sort of sticks with me, but naive practice is the whole, I'm just going to go out and shoot a few baskets. You don't really have a plan. You're just, I'm practicing because I'm shooting and I stand around the free throw line and I kind of shoot baskets towards the, towards the hoop. And I do that for 15 minutes and I call it practice. Uh, the reality is that is basically never going to make you better. There are five elements of deliberate practice and they are get out of your comfort zone. As much as it stinks, if you are comfortable in what you're doing, You are not learning. You're not pushing yourself. You're not learning anything new. You are doing things you already know how to do. That's why you're comfortable. (laughs) Two is to set specific goals. So a lot of people should have heard of this when it comes to smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound. It's important to not just say, I want to get better at free throws. It's more specific to know, I had to have done enough research to know that you have a 50% free throw rate and then to say that you want to increase that to 60% or something that is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Three is to focus intently. You have to be putting all of your effort into doing a better job job if you're just phoning it in if you are thinking about what you're gonna make for dinner when you get home or whether or not you have enough gas to make it home from class you are not focused intently on achieving the goal and especially you know with agility we're a lot of times talking about handling for us that you're really practicing some you know like motor skills around a front cross which can be similar to, say, like a step ball change while you're moving, essentially. It's important to focus really intently on the task at hand. And for that reason, it means your training sessions probably don't need to be as long as you think that they need to be. You don't want to practice longer than you can actually focus intently. For is to get and respond to feedback. So this typically means having a coach. You can have a delayed coaching scenario. It's not as ideal. Again, in agility, we do a lot of stuff that is online. So we send a video for feedback. You don't get it immediately, but ideally you get it before your next practice session. And then you can incorporate that feedback into what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the last one, which I think is the hardest one to explain, is to develop a mental model. In the book, he talks about being able to visualize a perfect performance and that part of being able to do the skill is being able to have a perfect vision of what it looks like. Because if you can't visualize it, you're you're basically never going to get there. Mm-hmm. And so for if you are a golfer and you tend to Slice the ball. I think that's a thing. Uh, <laughs>
0: yes, it is. You
1: have <laughs> you you need to be able to sort of revisualize your swing to what. Your to where your goal is versus whatever your visualization is, the current thing you've been doing, which results in the slice. So you're going to have to change your, your mental model. So that one's a little bit harder to explain, but it's definitely an important step. And so the other thing I'll say about Erickson's research that maybe more people are familiar with is that this is where we got the 10,000 hour rule. And in the book, he discusses that this isn't a hard and fast rule. There's a lot of things that go into sort of how many repetitions or how long it takes to develop a skill but it does really help us understand how many times we need to do something in order to really gain that skill or become as the we would say with behavior fluent in the skill and you could say even be able to like be able to do the skill in in flow without thinking in the more neuroscience way right for it to be Committed to your like sort of subconscious processes that you can do those things without actively thinking about them takes a a lot, a lot of practice. Which then goes back to this idea that if you're only practicing in class, if that's the only time your dog ever sees weave poles, for example, it is going to take you a very long time to gain that skill. And it doesn't mean that you have to practice for hours and hours a day. Um, If you're feeling stuck, It just means looking at the amount of practice, the quality of practice is a really good place to start.
0: Yeah, this is super important. So one of the things that you'll hear us talking about is that it's important to keep training sessions short with your dog. So. Uh, I have given this advice and hear it a lot, set a timer for three minutes or less for your training sessions. And that's because the quality of your training goes down as each partner gets tired. And in this case, Mm -hmm. you're one side of that partnership and your dog is the other. And we, as people, tend to want to just push forward, push forward, keep them working, especially if you have a dog who likes to work. Uh, but even those dogs who like to work aren't necessarily making the best choices if you're training for too long. So then it becomes counterproductive to what we actually hope to achieve. So you'll hear more about how to train Uh, dogs in a smart way so that what you're teaching them is done in a quality manner instead of just repetition after repetition after repetition.
1: Another piece of advice that I've heard is to just give yourself a finite number of cookies so that um, all... I'll use cheese sticks sometimes, and that is good for me. I have to put the treats really far away, or it's as bad as when you put the the chips in your bowl, but mm-hmm. then you don't put the chips back in the cupboard. I'm like, <laughs> oh, just two more, just two more. And I think the other thing that we tend to want to do is to have sort of that aha moment. Yes, and like, oh, let's just get one good rep, or then it's just one more good rep, and that that can also really be a trap. Yes, so we're. Often told to end training on a positive note, which for us, positive is like that we got what we wanted. Yes. And (laughs) this really dovetails nicely into the next thing I want to talk about which is an interesting concept. I don't remember where I first heard about this but it's something that I have observed in my training and when it was introduced to me it was called latent learning and it can be really helpful to remember this when you're trying to learn a new skill and you put yourself in the just one more rep and push 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 push. It's this idea that when you take a break from something Your brain is doing some wiring in the background, and that you can come back to this skill a few days later, and that something will have clicked into place. Now, when I was doing some research for this episode, and I looked this term up, what I found out is that this is a somewhat controversial term in the psychology world, and that the definition they use for latent learning does not fit what I just told you, and that it has to do with learning something and never needing to demonstrate it, and then it pops out. So there's some similarities there, but not what what I'm talking about but I do have to say this is something that I have experienced so whatever it is called the idea <laughs> that it makes sense to take a break from something that you've been working on and come back to it fresh is often good advice it is often a good thing to make yourself do and for me it, it's we've training with dogs right that it is the one of the weirdest things to teach them I think I would be interested in an argument between agility people if now weave poles are harder to train or if running contacts are harder to train. (laughs) I would argue for running contacts personally. Yeah,
0: I think running contacts probably win for for that, actually. So I don't know if you kind of clarified that latent learning in the way that we're explaining it is you've been working hard on something and you don't quite get it and you let the dog sleep on it. And the next day or two, you come back to it and they've suddenly got it. Like, you don't know how. But now they have it. And since I am doing running contacts right now, which is where the dog has to run across the dog walk, which is essentially a balance beam with a ramp on both ends. And at the end of the dog walk, we want them to hit about a 12 inch by 12 inch area with their back feet. And they have to do this at full speed. And they have to be able to listen to the next cue for the next obstacle. So it takes a lot of thinking on the dog's part, and it's really hard to learn. I have been coached lately by my trainer to only do one session every other day with my dog, maximum. And I only do a certain number of reps per training session. And sure enough, what we have trouble with on one day, we'll go back to two days later, and he will be... Remarkably better, and so I don't know what happens, but it works.
1: Yeah, and I think if you read the Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, he talks a lot about um, myelin, which Uh is like brain insulating. I don't actually know a brain insulating thing will be very technical, (laughs) and that it seems to me if that's you know really what's going on that the The myelin is doing its thing in the brain, and it's making those connections stronger, and it's connecting those those neural circuits, and that that's part of what happens while you sleep on it, yeah, um using air quotes that nobody can see, mm-hmm. sort of a messy presentation of this concept, but what we can tell there's really something to it, and if you've experienced it, you're like yeah it's it's a thing, so important to take breaks that's let us just that's sum, the bottom sum line. up. <laughs>
0: Bottom line, take some breaks. Yep. (laughs) So talk to us about Dunning-Kruger.
1: Well, running contacts, like, is a great segue for me into Dunning-Kruger because you you think you know so much. And then you're like, oh, God, how do I train a running contact? So Dunning-Kruger is a phenomenon where the less you know, the more you think you know, and the more you know, the less you think you know. Yep. Does that makes sense? <laughs> yeah. So
0: this is when, and I'm sure you've all seen this happen, somebody reads an article or a book about a topic and suddenly they're an expert and they know everything about that topic, but... The people who have actually spent a lifetime learning about that topic will actually tell you that they know very little. And so that's what Dunning-Kruger does. It's it's imagine a bell curve. And when we started Agility, you know, and we're two years in, we probably felt like we knew a lot about it. But now 10 years down the road, we would both tell you we have so much more to learn and know nothing.
1: Right. Well, so I was thinking about when I started teaching the beginning agility classes for the local club. Mm-hmm. This was maybe 5 years ago. So I was only like halfway. I was about 5 years into agility. I'd been trialing for a while. Man, I was super confident. I was like, I got this. I am such a good candidate to teach this class. <laughs> I'm really excited to get people into the sport, which that's still true. I love that part of it. I would not be willing to teach that class today because I don't feel like I know enough to mm-hmm. teach it. And it's been five more years. Yep. So it was such a perfect example of how the Dunning-Kruger effect works. And I'm like, no, nope, they're professional people who this is their job. I am just a hobbyist and I love it and I'm happy to provide advice and chat with people and just give my own perspective but I don't want to purport to be an instructor in any way shape or form and man (laughs) when I was teaching those classes I just I thought I knew so much I was in such a good place with what I was telling people so it's just really funny how it how it works and absolutely it's important to remind yourself of that when you get into a sport and you, and think like, you know I, everything? I know everything
0: now. <laughs> you sure don't. No, we don't. We, none of us do. We're always learning. And, and actually, that's one of the things I love about it is there is so much to learn. Like, it never stops. Um, yeah. So you you won't get bored. So one of the things I have learned about learning from agility is the difference between hard and soft skills. So in dog sports and in life, there are some skills that are considered hard skills and some that are considered soft skills. And understanding which type of skill you're trying to learn is important because the strategies for each of them can be quite different. So hard skills are things that can be learned and per- perfected through repetition and the perfect practice that was described earlier. So for dog sports this might be perfecting the use of a duck call or a whistle or teaching a dog how to turn on a flyball box or how to turn left and right or even I would argue sit and down, or a recall. Those are hard skills. Other regular sports examples would be like a baseball swing or a layup. And for non-sport people, this might be having perfect handwriting or parallel parking.
1: Yeah, hard skills are all around us and the nice thing about them is that they conform to all of those principles of deliberate practice that we talked about earlier. So whether you want to dance or cook or train a dog to jump off of a dock, these principles can help you practice those skills effectively. And again, been very interesting for me in looking at learning guitar, not that I've spent a lot of time on it, how much of the learning about learning stuff applies to that and I'm able to Use there. So the other type of skill, soft skills, are a little trickier. These are the skills that involve working with and understanding. Other beings. So, whereas hard skills are more black and white, you're either doing it right or doing it wrong. Soft skills are all of the gray areas in between. So, whether they be people or dogs, when we talk about beings in agility, this is a soft skill: is having the feel for the timing of giving your dog cues on course. How far away from you can they be? How much motion can you put into it, um, and etc. If you are training a trick or training really anything. This is about being able to read your dog's behavior and recognize that it is time to end the session, that they're, they're checking out either they're stressing up, they're stressing down, uh, they're, board, whatever is going on. It's it's the reading of that body language. And a typical example of this in regular life is communication skills. So how many people out there have sat through some kind of training about how to relate to your coworkers or customers? Oh
0: man, all of us. Right? <laughs> <laughs> We've all had trainings like that and we're still learning about it too. Um, it is an important distinction, hard skills versus soft skills. And learning about this really helped provide some clarity for for me in my training because a lot of times I think the hard skills are the elements that the dog can really know for sure, right? But the soft skills are the way I tell the dog what to do in between all of those cues. Yep. So there's just a lot of subtlety with the soft skills versus really de- defined criteria for hard skills.
1: Yeah, I soft skills, a good way to think about it, they're a lot harder to have kind of goals around. You know what I mean? So if I want to be a better communicator, what kind of goals do I set for soft skills? You have to just, you have to practice talking to people and kind of diagnose. I mean, the feedback piece is still important and looking at your behavior and what you tried, all of that stuff is important, but it's it's a lot harder to measure soft skills. Yeah. All right. Those were all the concepts that we had. So let's put this all together. What does all of this mean when it comes to learning with our dogs? We've talked about a few specific things like what effective practice looks like, being able to recognize if something is a hard skill that can be drilled, or if it's a soft skill that requires developing some instinct, feeling, and recognition. Overall, the big takeaway that we would like our listeners to get is that you are learning too. Dog sports are hard because of the dual learning factor. While you are trying to teach your dog new skills, like say how to put four feet in a box, you are simultaneously trying to develop the skill of Shaping, for example, which is no small thing. Shaping involves recognizing when to click and reward, where to place the reward, when to raise criteria, so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, and so uh, we introduced a new term just now, shaping. Shaping is what is referred to as when you're clicker training, typically, and you're getting the dog to offer behaviors and then rewarding them when they make
1: uh... a closer approximation to what you were trying to train. With the four feet in a box, for example, you start with clicking and rewarding the dog for looking at the box. And then you might be clicking for them putting their nose closer to the box. Then if a foot bumps the box, you reward that. If they lift a paw, you reward that. Then if they put one paw in, you reward that. So they get closer and closer approximations to the behavior that you're looking for. Yeah. I am not the best at shaping. It is a hard. It's a hard skill, and I don't mean a hard skill. I mean it's a it's tough. It's difficult. Skill. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it is. There are shaping. Probably someday we'll have to do a whole episode on shaping and what it is and what yeah. it entails and all that stuff. But we use it a lot, and most people use it in some form with their dogs all the time. Um, and when you get really good at it, you can teach them stuff really quickly. Um, really
1: fast and all kinds of crazy stuff
0: yeah oh yeah um my favorite trick that i shaped with my dogs probably is the wave so they can wave maybe Mm -hmm. i'll take a video clip of that and post it for for people so thanks whitney for diving into all of this learning about learning for our listeners
1: yeah happy to i'm clearly a bit of a nerd about all of this. And I hope that folks found this useful and at least somewhat interesting. And if you are interested in diving any even deeper into the topic, the show notes are going to be full of resources, mostly books.
0: <laughs> and if you aren't a voracious reader, you can always Google the different concepts and read a few articles or watch a few YouTube videos and get some additional information without committing to 250 pages. <laughs>
1: for sure. All right. Well, that is all for today's podcast. Before we leave you though, we want to let you know what's in store for our next episode, which will be all about learning when to seek out a professional dog trainer. We're going to have our very first guest with us, Liz Randall, who's a fellow agility competitor, but more importantly, a professional dog trainer and owner of a doggy daycare training and boarding facility. We look forward to sharing that with you. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast and join us for our next episode in two weeks.
0: Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time.